0: I leaned over to Brent while the young people were singing and I said, you know, this song has a lot more meaning when you know that a number of these kids are out on the street during the week, sometimes, sharing these truths with the lost of our culture and of their own volition. I don't know about you, but that moved me. And I pray that for us older folks, it will inspire us to be faithful with the gospel. Many of you know much more than they about the Word of God, and yet they are being faithful. Are we? I pray that we will. And Father, we do pray, I pray again that you would change us Lord, you've done so many wonderful things in the life of this church, spiritually, and so many who have come to know you out of places that they were running from you, and they hated you, they wanted nothing to do with you, but you loved them, and you came and changed their hearts, and now they're here singing your praise. And will, by your grace, forever and ever. Because forever you are with us. And forever you will love us. And Lord, we deserve none of it. All to the praise of the glory of your grace. And so we thank you, Father. We ask you now to teach us from your word. But I pray that this would not just be a place to listen. That we would... Remember the admonition of Jesus to take care how we listen, that it wouldn't just be hearing to have our ears tickled and our hearts stirred, but that we would submit to what we hear and be changed by it, so that you would not look at us and say, why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, but do not do the things that I command you? Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us a heart of submission and obedience even to these exalted truths that we find in this little minor prophet in the Old Testament. May you be glorified in us now, Father, for we pray it in the name of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. If you could turn in your Bibles to the little book of Habakkuk, there toward the end of the Old Testament. This morning we are in Habakkuk chapter 2, and we'll actually go through chapter 3 this morning. And then next week we'll finish the book of Habakkuk and then head off in a new direction that I'll tell you about next week. If there's ever a question about whether or not a man is fundamentally sinful, we needn't look any further than the morning paper or the local news for sufficient evidence. Evil and injustice are everywhere. Philosophers may attempt to redefine it. Politicians may seek to legislate it away. The judicial system makes every attempt to suppress it, and yet it lives and it thrives in every corner of the globe, whether it be in Sudan, where genocide happens almost every day, to the terrorism in the Middle East, from the corrupt dealings of unscrupulous governors to petty theft of local hooligans in the neighborhood, from the unfaithful spouse to the temperamental child, even between members of the body of Christ, there often arises evil and injustice. And whenever there is human hearts involved, then there is the possibility the capacity, as it were, for the kind of sin that provokes outrage and cries for justice and even the exacting of vengeance. And this is precisely what Habakkuk was wrestling with when he wrote his little book that bears his name. God's people had turned their backs on God's law, his covenant, and Habakkuk had been praying, and perhaps with, it would seem, in the verbiage of the text that he was with a remnant of faithful Israelites who were praying consistently, God, come and purify your people. You promised that if we went astray and worshipped idols, you would come and you would discipline us. Lord, come, do something. And yet it seemed the Lord was doing nothing. And so Habakkuk asked the Lord to explain himself. And then according to chapter 1, as he'd been crying for some time for God to intervene and discipline the people, it seemed that God was deaf to his prayers. We talked about that maybe the second week in this study, about how to respond when your prayers seem to go unanswered, as Habakkuk's did. And then much to Habakkuk's astonishment, In answer to his prayer, the Lord came, and God said, beginning with verse 5 of chapter 1, that he had heard Habakkuk's prayer and was indeed doing something to right the wrong, and this is what he would do. He was actually raising up the Chaldeans, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to wage war against his people and take them captive to a land that was not their own. This was more than a little confusing to the prophet. Yes, the people needed to be judged, but how can God justify using a nation more wicked than Judah itself in order to discipline God's people? In verse 13, he exclaims these words at the heart of his question. Chapter 1, verse 13, he says, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and," (coughs) and you cannot look with wickedness on wickedness with favor, why then do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? And why are you silent when the wicked swallow up? And so in chapter 2, the Lord answers, but he does not explain himself. Ever been there? He prayed, and the Lord gives an answer without an explanation. He simply reminds the prophet, and this is really the key verse of the whole book, Verse 4, chapter 2, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by faith. In other words, Habakkuk, you don't need an explanation. You only need to trust me. Truly righteous people live by faith in what I have promised not by having all of their answers be given a satisfying explanation regarding my purposes and my plans. And so I tell you, the just shall live by faith. Trust me, Habakkuk. This is the heart of your relationship with me. Trust me. Believe me. Aristotle once said, justice is regarded as the highest of all virtues, more admirable than morning star or evening star. And perhaps you've never thought of it, but your heart has felt this before. When a child of God suffers ill treatment, betrayal, false accusation, or becomes a victim of some crime or atrocity, he will most certainly feel this deep, burning sense of outrage and a need for justice. And he may even be tempted to take revenge of some sort. Sometimes God doesn't answer the way we want him to answer when we have been dealt with in an unjust manner. Ever been falsely accused? Ever have your motives judged wrongly? And you think, Lord, what what can I do about this? Why aren't you doing something? Why don't you fix my reputation? And you know what? God doesn't always come and fix it. It's just the reality of life, right? I mean, let's just keep this real. Sometimes God doesn't bring justice in our lifetime against those who treat us unjustly. Sometimes the murderer is never found. Sometimes the thief is not caught. I remember a couple of years ago, about two or three years ago now, uh, I took my family up to Oklahoma City for Christmas, and uh, we, uh, we went inside and had a wonderful Christmas Eve, and uh, Christmas morning uh, my brother-in-law, who is now going to be with the Lord, came in uh, from outside and didn't really say anything, just as we were kind of going through presents, uh, it was revealed that some of them were missing, and we all looked at Scott, and he said, yeah, our, our cars were broken into last night and everything that was in them is gone. And praise the Lord, there wasn't much, but they did damage to our vehicles. In fact, his little old Mercedes that he drove around, they uh, wanted to get into the trunk, and so the doors were not open, and so they broke through the door, and they tore through the leather in the back seat to get the, the seat down so they could get into the trunk, not realizing the trunk was open. All they had to do was push the button. And they did irreparable harm to his car. And you know what? As far as we know, they were never caught. And insurance didn't pay for what was lost. I mean, that's a small thing. That's a small thing. But it f- you feel that. And you wonder, God, I mean, if I feel this way on a little thing, if I feel this way when someone's calling my reputation into question, and you're not fixing that, must what must it feel like to be One of those families whose child comes up on Amber Alert, and the the killer is never caught. The kidnapper is never dealt with justly. It happens. Then what? Where is God? The criminal may never be caught. The offender may never seek forgiveness and repent. What then? What does it mean that the just shall live by faith when injustice and evil are not immediately prosecuted? And more importantly and practically, how does the believer protect himself against the temptation of bitterness and vengefulness when evil seems to triumph? That was Habakkuk's question. The answer is the just shall live by faith. But what does that look like? What does that look like? Let's talk about that from the text this morning and from other texts as well. If you're taking notes, number one, there's really only two points to this. There are probably ten if we had enough time. But I'll just give you two because I think the text gives us two, and we'll stick with that. Number one, in fighting against the temptation of bitterness and vengefulness when evil seems to triumph, believe that God hates injustice. Believe that God hates injustice. Do not allow yourself to think that God is indifferent when you are dealt with in an unjust manner. Habakkuk had a hard time reconciling his theology with his experience. His theology said that God is too pure to look upon Or prove evil. His theology said God is holy, 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 and that it cannot wink at sin or turn a deaf ear to suffering. But his experience seemed to indicate that God must be indifferent to this. God must be indifferent to unjust injustice and evil in the world. But on that point, Habakkuk was wrong. The fact that God does not immediately act with discernible force against the deeds of sinners is no evidence that he is indifferent toward sin. He hates sin and every form of injustice. In fact, here in chapter 2, he lists by name a number of evils that he hates specifically. It's interesting to note that he does it by means of a kind of mocking song or taunt. We don't use the word taunt very much. But if you ever hear one of your little children look at one of the others and say, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, you know, we hear that once in a while with our six-year-olds, you know, you can't touch me, there's nothing you can do, and well, and then the fight's on, you know, the chase is on, the game is afoot. It's a taunt. It's throwing down the gauntlet. And the way he does this is very typical in the Old Testament. He does it by pronouncing, whoa, and I want you to see it just in a few places here. If you look at verse 6, woe to him who increases. Look at verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a city. This is chapter 2. Verse 15, woe to you who make your neighbors drink. Uh, Verse 19, woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake. And so we have these statements of woe. Now, don't use the term woe very much anymore. In fact, uh, you'll probably only see it in theater. We, We don't use the word with one another. It's kind of one of those words that has gone the way of the dodo, just like other terms like alas and forsooth. I mean, when was the last time you used that, right, Damon? You said that to your wife this week, forsooth. But in the Bible, woe is a very important term. Jesus used it to denounce the Pharisees and scribes for their hypocrisy. Wherever we find it in the word of God, it is a pronouncement of doom. And it is saying, may God deal with you justly. Woe to you, scribes, hypocrites. You wash the outside of the pot but you'd leave the inside dirty. You are like whitewashed sepulchers that are clean on the outside, but full of dead man's corpses. Woe to you. Wherever we find it in the word of God is a pronouncement of doom. Usually it cites doom on a city or a specific people or person. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, in that great revelation Isaiah had when he he had the vision of going into the temple and there was the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and the temple was filled with smoke and the threshold shook and the seraphim were crying holy 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 is the Lord God almighty the whole earth is full of his glory and how did Isaiah respond to that He threw himself on his face, and he cried, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Holy One. Isaiah pronounced doom on himself when he came into God's presence. I don't think there was any such thing as seeker service or emergent ideas in Isaiah's mind when he actually saw God, nor in Moses' when he saw God, nor in Joshua's when he saw God. If you're bored with worship, it's only because you don't know God as you should. When Isaiah saw him, he threw himself to the ground and pronounced woe on himself. Not very uplifting to the self-esteem, I think. But oh, so proper and so perfect a response. In Habakkuk, however, doom is pronounced in the form of woes on the unjust and the wicked through a series of woes that I've already mentioned, but let's read them. After all, we're here to hear from God and not so much from me. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, he says, Will not all these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuation against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his? For how long? And make himself rich with loans? Oh, my goodness, does our culture need this scripture? And says, Woe to him who increases what is not his, and for how long, and makes himself rich with loans. And the idea is, not very long. Eventually, all of that debt is going to come to to an end. It's going to catch up. And then what? Verse 7, Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them, because you have looted many nations, All the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done in the land, its towns, and all its inhabitants. Now, I resist to apply this to America, and let me just say, before I make any comment on it, that this was not written about us. It was not written specifically about us, and so we must be careful with it. Nevertheless, the application seems obvious, does it not? Verse 8: Because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of the human bloodshed and violence done in the land to the towns and all its inhabitants. And a second woe, not just against the extortioner, which is verses 6 through 8. But verses 9 to 11, against the greedy and the arrogant, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many people so that you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer from its framework. And then beginning with verse 12 through 14, Against the drunkard and the violent, he says, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. As the water covers the sea, verse 15, woe to you who make your neighbors drink. Who mix in your venom among, even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourselves drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants. And then finally, a woe against idol worship. Verse 18. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork. When he fashions speechless idols woe to him who says to a piece of wood awake and to a mute stone arise and that is your teacher i mean really are you submitting to such a man's teaching who takes a a hunk of wood out of the wood pile and he puts a face on it and then tells you to come and worship him I mean, what kind of foolishness is this? How much discernment do you need? There is no breath at all inside, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And one day it will. All the clattering, all the clamoring, all the religious stuff that's going around, or you hear the reports of what they run into downtown as they're sharing the gospel. You just have no idea what a confused mess it is out there in terms of knowledge of God. Because they reject his word. They want his word. They want to create God in their own image. And so they've made for themselves idols of the heart, idols of the mind, idols to worship. They've made God out to be what they want him to be. And then they worship him as such. And they cry out and they go from house to house and from neighborhood to neighborhood inviting you to come and worship their false gods, whether it be the God of Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or Buddhism or whatever it is. And there's clamoring and there's clatter and there's loud shouting and speaking and everyone wants your attention. But someday... There will be silence, for the Lord is in his holy temple, and all the earth will be silent before him. Here is God saying, you you name the injustice, I hate it. I hate. The feelings that you feel against the injustice that you see are nothing compared to my hatred for injustice. Whether it be racial injustice or injustice against the unborn or whether it be private injustice in front of your computer monitor or whatever the injustice is. God hates it 10,000 times more than you ever did. Wife of every man who has given himself to pornography, you hate it. God hates it 10,000 times more than you do. And that may not sound like a cure for bitterness, but I'm going to show you how it is in just a minute. You've got to know that God hates it. You see, beloved, God hates every form of evil and injustice. Every time a little baby in its mother's womb has her little life snuffed out by, abortion, by an abortion doctor, God is angry. Every time a man takes his anger out on his wife and beats her and abuses her, God is angry. Every time a dad becomes an abuser of his child rather than the protector and defender of his child, God is angry. Every time a drunkard or drug addict gets into a car and drives down a freeway and hurts or kills other people, God is angry. In fact, Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And so do not think that because God does not respond to evil and injustice immediately when it happens, means that he is indifferent. No, no. That is a false assumption about what God is up to. It is a false assumption about God not hearing your prayers or not caring about the situation that you know of or have experienced He's not indifferent. He's a just judge, and he hates the sin that he sees. In fact, moral indifference would be an imperfection in God. But God is infinitely holy. He is infinite in all of his perfections, and all of his perfections are infinitely holy. But it doesn't stop here. God not only hates evil and injustice of every kind, he's also committed to judging it. We must believe that God hates it, and we must, number two, trust that God will judge it. We must believe that he hates it, and we must trust that God will judge it. Jai Pecker rightly points out that moral indifference would be an imperfection In God, not a perfection. But, he says, not to judge the world would show moral indifference. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being, not indifferent to questions of right and wrong, is the fact that he has committed himself to judge the world. Beloved, what I want you to see this morning is that the judgment of God is a glorious thing for the believer. It is a hope-giving truth in the Bible. I mean, don't, let's not diminish the reality that God is a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy, but if you believe that he is a God of love, grace, and mercy, and believe that he is not also a God of judgment, then the love, grace, and mercy really have no meaning. I mean, think about mercy. What is he protecting you from? If he is being merciful, what is it that you deserve that you're not getting? Because of his goodness. And what about his grace? He's giving you something you don't deserve. Well, why don't you deserve it? Listen, if the bad news isn't really bad, then the good news isn't really that good now, is it? If there is no judgment, if there is no hell, then there's no need for a gospel. There's no need for the cross. Behold the glory of the judgment of God. And notice what God says in verse 11. Well, let me back up. In the book of Habakkuk, God hints back in chapter 1 after revealing to the prophet that he was raising up Babylon to judge his own people He hints at this hatred of injustice. And you remember, Habakkuk said first, his first prayer was, God, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you answering our prayer? Why don't you hear us? When we cry out to you about the injustice and the evil that are happening among your people. And he comes and he says, I I do hear your prayer. And you're going to be astonished at this. But in answer to your prayer, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I am at work, and I've been at work for a long time. I'm raising up Babylon, and Babylon's going to attack you, and that will be grace to you. Really? Yes. I'm going to make your economy tank out completely, and that will be grace to you. Trust me. The just live by faith, and so Habakkuk responds to that by saying, "God, how is that possible?" I thought you were holy. I thought you were just. How can you use such evil people to do that, to come and judge us? They're worse than we are. And God doesn't give an explicit response, but he does say in verse 11 of chapter 1, as he is describing Babylon, this horde of people, this fearsome foe, explaining that they are virtually unstoppable in their lust to conquer lands and peoples and that they would, by God's permissive will, be allowed to conquer Judah in order to accomplish God's will for them. But, he says in verse 11 of chapter 1, then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. Jesus said a similar statement. He's talking about little ones who were harmed by older people. and He said it would be better for them to have a millstone put around their neck and cast into the heart of the sea. And then he says this, these things must take place, but woe to him by whom they take place the mystery of God's providence, it's going to happen. But the people who commit the sin and the process will be held accountable. Okay, we're all back in the deep end again, aren't we? Not touching the bottom right now? Not able to see how all of this fits together? God is God. God is God. We will not ever fully figure him out. But we do know that he's holy in all of his infinite perfections. And everything he accomplishes is perfectly timed, planned, and allowed for to accomplish his will in history. Yes, in the mystery of his providence, God will use a nation more wicked and unjust than Judah to judge his own people. But in the end, they will be held accountable before God for what they have done. And then this gives Habakkuk tremendous hope. In chapter 3, Habakkuk begins singing a song of hope that flows freely out of his realization that God is a righteous and omnipotent judge. Look with me, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 3. And what I want you to see here is Habakkuk thinking back on God's past judgments. It's really hard to go through this chapter and kind of sort out which judgment is he talking about. Is he talking about judging Midian, or is he talking about judging Egypt here? Is the water the Red Sea? Is the, you know, holding back the sun? Was that the deal with Joshua? What is all of this? We don't know. It's almost as if, as if Habakkuk is, is randomly thinking in his mind of all of these things that God has done in past biblical history in order to accomplish his will, things that were astounding and almost unhonorable. And he throws them all together into this song ever heard a song and you think, well, it's got kind of a neat tune, but I have no idea what he's saying. Um, This is what Habakkuk is saying. He is rejoicing in God's past judgments against wickedness and injustice. And so he begins. And again, I'm just going to read the text and let God speak for himself. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to whatever that, that word is. It's an instrumental word that means dirge or something. Verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. Oh, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, please, remember mercy. Let me just stop there. In your wrath, remember mercy. Hear Habakkuk knowing that God is about to judge his own people. Notice the concern the prophet has for those whom God will judge among his own people. He says, in wrath, God, I know you're going to do this thing, but be merciful. You ever prayed like that for someone? God, I know they need to be spanked. I know their life needs to be crushed. I know they need to face disaster. And I don't know how you're going to bring it about, but I think because you love them, you're going to. Just pray, God, be gentle with them. If you could hear the elders praying for people over the years who have undergone church discipline here, we've prayed repeatedly, God, be gracious, be merciful to them. We had to kick them out. We had to discipline them because your word requires us to. God, be gentle in your wrath. Remember mercy. But he continues. God comes from Timnah, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hands. I think lightning And there is the hiding of his power. I mean, think about the last time a tornado came through here, right? Or the last time, you maybe in Florida, hurricane, thunderstorm, tornado, whatever it was, and it rocked your world. I remember uh, in the early years, my wife would go home to Kansas about every six months or so, and I would go down to Dinosaur State Park on Sunday evening, and I'd set up a tent, and I'd stay there, just me and the Lord, and I'd pray, for a couple of days, read his word, study some things, and just sing to the Lord, because nobody goes there Sunday night except me, and had Monday, and the whole park was empty, and I could wander around, and I could read the word, and I could talk to the Lord out loud, and I could sing his praises. And one night, this thunderstorm ran through, and I didn't know it was coming, and it was fierce. And it just went on and on and on. And at first, the first 20 minutes, I'm thinking, this is cool. This is really cool. And about after 20 minutes, I thought, okay, this, this should be ending any, any time now. And about 20 minutes later, it's still going. And, and no kidding, lightning is still hitting the ground. And I'm thinking, all right, this isn't funny. <laughs> this is scary. And I laid there and trembled. Habakkuk says, this is just the hiding of his power. He cloaks himself in that kind of stuff. Before him, verse 5. We don't like to think of God in these terms, but listen. This is God revealing himself to us. We must come to the word of God and not say, first of all, God, use this to change my marriage. How does this apply to raising my kids? How does this apply to making my business better? And more successful, the first thing we should ask about the Bible is what? What does this reveal about God? Verse 5 Before him goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth, he looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered, his ancient hills collapsed. And his ways are everlasting. In other words, don't think that he has changed. I mean, we're talking about past judgment here, but God is incapable of change. He's still this way. I saw, verse 7, the tents of Cushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling, earthquake did the Lord rage against the rivers? or was your anger against the rivers? or was your wrath against the sea, that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? There's a hint there. This is redemptive history. God has a plan in all of His judgment to bring about salvation to all who will believe. Your bow is made bare, verse nine. the rods, that's arrows of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. Is he talking about the flood here? The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their place. They went away at the light of your arrows at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. God has a point to history. A biblical view of history is not cyclical. That's why we think it's silly to believe in reincarnation. It's not cyclical. It's not just going around and around and around and around and around. It is moving linearly in a single direction as an arrow moves toward a target. God has a goal in history. And he is moving toward that goal that all the peoples, people from every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue will bow willingly and joyfully before the Messiah, the Son of God, and worship him. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced him with his own spears. The head of his throngs, they stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed In secret, you trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. Beloved, when was the last time you exalted in the judgment of God as a good thing, as a beautiful thing? Do you realize that if it were not for God's judgment, there could be no salvation? We tremble at this description of the judgment of God, it was nothing compared to what he poured out on Jesus for you. If God simply tolerated sin, he was the good old boy, grandfather in the sky, who kind of winks at it and smiles and chuckles, we would all be doomed. None of us would have any hope of entering into his holy presence. But by his grace, he did not let our sin go unpunished. By his grace, he did not let my sin go unpunished. To the contrary, he sent his son to bear his just and holy wrath against me so that I might be saved. Oh, the glory of the judgment of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf so that I might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians five twenty-one, Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, I am healed. Forgiven. Reconciled. Redeemed. Justified. Glorified. All of it. Because God is both a god Of wrath and mercy. It is his wrath that makes his mercy merciful. It is his wrath that makes his grace gracious. It is his wrath that makes his salvation glorious to us. It is his wrath that makes his forgiveness so desirous. Oh, the glory of the wrath of God, that he did not let our sins go unpunished, but poured out the just punishment due us on his Son, that we would have eternal life. Stephen Carnock, a Puritan author, wrote these words. I have to listen very carefully. Not all the vials of judgment that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world nor the flaming furnace of a sinner's conscience, nor the irreversible sentence pronounced against the rebellious demons, nor the groans of the damned creatures give such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon his Son. Never did divine holiness appear more beautiful and lovely then at the time our savior's countenance was most marred in the midst of his dying groans in all of it god was demonstrating his love for us and that while we were yet sinners christ died for us beloved that's the only grace the bible knows about. It is the only saving grace the word of god offers. There is salvation in no other way. But this is not the end of god's wrath, nor is it the limit of our hope in his judgment, for we also have the promise that one day his patience with evil and injustice will end. One day all wrongs will be made right. And so the way we conquer temptation toward bitterness and revenge, beloved, is by trusting in God's promise that one day he will set the record straight. One day God will settle all accounts with those who have done evil against you. And you don't have to. You don't have to exact revenge. You don't have to exact judgment. In fact, you are not allowed to. Because it would rob God of the glory of his judgment. That's what he meant. That's what he meant for us to understand when he said in Romans twelve nineteen, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, don't you dare touch that. It belongs to me. It would be unjust for you to exact revenge. Luke 18, 7 and 8, Jesus said, Shall not the God shall not God bring about justice for His elect, who cry to Him day and night, and will He delay long over them? I tell you," Jesus says. He will bring about justice for them speedily. On this point, John Piper writes, "Future justice for God's enemies is pictured here as future grace for God's people. God's future judgment on evil is future grace for you. You see, we need not be ruled by a vengeful spirit or a heart of bitterness. And yet so many people are. They've been dealt with unjustly, yes. They've been victimized in some way, yes, no doubt. And yet now they are ruled by bitterness and a desire for revenge, but we need not be ruled by these things that ruin our lives. This is part of of what it means when God says the just shall live by faith. It means when faithful men and women of God suffer from injustice and evil, they they resolve to not respond in kind, but to trust that God will take care of it in the end and far better than we ever could. God will deal justly. He will bring judgment to bear. The judgment of God is a glorious thing because it is a holy thing. And perhaps it's never occurred to you before, but did you know that when God pours out his wrath on the final day, when the last puffs of smoke are going up from the earth, he will call you and me to rejoice. Revelation 18, where we read about God destroying the great city. Ironically, considering we're studying Habakkuk, in Revelation, he calls it (coughs) Babylon. And he says this, Revelation 18, Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Revelation 18, 20. And then later, In chapter 19, verses 1 through 4, after these things, John writes, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And the second time he said, hallelujah, her smoke rises forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, amen and hallelujah, at the judgment of the wicked. I tell you, beloved, it is grace to you that God has revealed this. It is grace to you. And for one reason... And more than one, but for one, you don't have to be captivated by bitterness and revenge. God is going to deal with it infinitely better than your puny imagination can ever dream up. 250 years ago, Jonathan Edwards commented on Revelation 18.20 with these words. He said, indeed, the saints are not called upon to rejoice in having their Revenge glutted on that day, but in seeing justice executed and in seeing the love and tenderness of God towards them manifest in his severity toward his enemies. When we see what God will do on that day, we'll look at him and say, God, thank you. God, thank you. We may not see it happening the way we prefer or as quickly as we prefer. But, beloved, know this for certain. God is sovereignly moving history toward a day of judgment, a judgment that in one sense has already begun. And I simply reference Romans 1 without comment. But Peter said this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, what, you know what's interesting about that passage? Peter's writing to the church and he's saying, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. I've said this before. I'll say it probably a thousand times before I die. Every church is made up of both believers and unbelievers. And here you sit, weak and after week, after week, after week. And you know the truth about the condition of your soul. You see the injustice. You don't think there's ever going to be a judgment, but there will. And you know why it seems like God is slow to bring about justice? It's because he's being patient toward you. He doesn't want you to be judged. He wants you to come to repentance. See the severity and the kindness of God. Law and grace. Wrath and mercy. Oh, friend, if you're hearing my voice this morning, I plead with you to consider the fact that God has set a day to judge all unrighteousness and sin. And if you stand before him on that day apart from Christ, you will be lost. Forever. Do not think that his slowness means he is indifferent about your sin. He's not indifferent. He's not indifferent. He is patient. He's giving you time to repent and to place your trust in Christ. His beloved son, and so I plead with you to confess your sin to him and to ask him to give you a new heart that loves the Lord Jesus and hates your sin even as He hates it. That's the gospel. It is not. God has a wonderful plan for your life. It is. God has a horrific eternity for your life, unless you repent. and fly to Christ. come to His cross find mercy. If you are a child of God, and I do assume that most of you are. If you are a child of God already through faith in Christ, let me encourage you to let go of the bitterness. That you may have toward those in the past who have hurt you. Your vengeful spirit is not bringing them to justice. It is destroying you from the inside out. And may the glory of God's justice keep you from sin. Yes, you have liberty. But be as a person who restrains himself for the glory of Christ and live a holy life before him for his great glory and for your own incalculable joy. And with regard to the unjust and the wicked, don't worry. Just don't worry. Yes, there are things that we should do as good citizens, as working with the institution of government that God has set in place to help restrain evil. Even that is a gift of God to bring judgment. You know, the policeman doesn't bear the sword in vain, the gun. That is part of it. But in the end, God will take care of it far better than you ever could or that our civil government ever could. This promise of judgment may seem slow, but it will come, and it will be perfect. This, beloved, is the believer's great hope. Amen. Father, we love you because you reveal it all, and not that you've revealed everything there is to know about you. Oh, my goodness. May we never be so arrogant as to think we know all there is to know about you. But you've given us all we need to know about you. And all scripture, even this little minor prophet, is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Equip us, Father, with the truth of your glorious holiness and your glorious wrath and your wonderful patience with us oh father how patient you were with me before i came to you and oh how patient you are as a tender loving father when i sin against you lord you are a wonderful savior and we give you praise. I pray, Father, that you would use your word now to pierce our hearts and especially the heart of anyone here who your spirit is working upon to repent for the first time, and to become a true child of God through the new birth by your grace and for your glory. May today be their day. And Father, we give you all the praise for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. amen. And amen.